Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is sponsored by the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, the Griffith Asia Institute, the New York Southeast Asia Network, the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies, and the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Patrick Jory. I teach Southeast Asian history at the University of Queensland, Australia, and I'm co-host of this channel. In the 16th century, the Portuguese regarded the Thai Kingdom of the Yutia, along with China and the Indian Empire of Vijayanagar, as one of the three great powers of Asia. Today, while Thailand has a prominent place within Southeast Asia, its history is arguably still poorly understood outside the country. Within Thailand, the political turbulence of the last few years has renewed public interest in the field of history, especially in the meaning of the events of 1932, the year in which the absent monarchy came to an end. In the new edition of their book, A History of Thailand, Chris Baker and Parcel Pongpajit make sense of Thailand's tumultuous modern politics and its society and economy by placing it within a longer-term historical narrative. The theme of the book is the formation of the modern nation-state and how different social forces have attempted to gain influence over it. Today I'm with uh, the book's co-author, Chris Baker. Chris is an independent writer, researcher and translator based in Bangkok. His co-author, Pasal Pongpajit, is Emeritus Professor of Political Economy at Chulalongkorn University, also in Bangkok. Chris, thanks so much for coming on New Books in Southeast Asian Studies. Patrick, it's a pleasure. Now, technically, this is not a new book. It's a new edition of a book that was first published in 2005, before the days of New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, and it contains much new material and new research. For these reasons, I felt that we had to have it on our podcast. It's, in fact, the fourth edition of this book in English, which I think is actually really remarkable for a book in Southeast Asian history. On top of that, I understand this is the 13th or 14th Thai language edition of the book under the title Kwatsa Thai Rumsamai. It's been very successful amongst uh, Thai readers, to say the least. So perhaps I can start off by asking, what's the secret of writing a successful work of history? You know, I, I, I really don't, can't have a general answer to that at all. But when, when we were asked to write this book, and, and it was commissioned by CUP, uh, Cambridge University Press, back in the early 2000s, there really, it really was very much an open field. We obviously had uh, uh, David Wyatt's book and Bas Terwiel's book, but they were very sort of traditional histories with very much a focus on the monarchy. And when they came into modern Thailand, they then focused very much on the top uh, levels of politics. And what seems to us was the opportunity was to write a history which gave a much fuller view of the society. And we we had already made a start of this because we'd written a book for 
OUP before that called Thailand Economy and Politics. And what that had done had taken and said there are two major social movements that create modern Thailand. One is the land frontier, which creates this big peasant economy in the 19th century. And the second is the immigration of so many, so many Chinese into Bangkok and into the rest of urban Thailand. So we had this kind of framework already. And in writing the first edition, we took that and, and then also put in the political history. And the technique was to sort of flip back and forth between the social side and the, the, the political side. And I think what we have learned, cert certainly internally uh, from, from, from the Thai readers, the trick of this is that it has allowed Thai readers to find themselves in the history. In other words, when they read the kind of classical and school book histories, which is all about the monarchy and then it's all about the generals, they can't find themselves. And it's very, it's very sort of distancing. But one of the reasons they have very much welcomed our book is that they can find their own histories there and they can put themselves in it. But I think for the international audience, we did quite, we did quite a good job of summarizing a lot of other research and putting it into one single narrative. Um, and I think apart from that is that we spent quite a lot of time ensuring that it was easy to read and good to read. You know, and that's, it, it's something I think a lot of academics don't spend quite enough, enough time on doing. They, they like to express themselves, and once they've expressed themselves, they're less interested in how that expression is being consumed. But we spent some time on trying to make it also very good to read. Do you see the book coming out of a particular school of historiography? And if so, can you describe it for us? What's your method? I, I, I mean, I grew up very much in uh, English social history. Obviously, things like E.P. Thompson and Eric Hobsbawm and all of that kind of background. And that's very clearly uh, where I am coming from. And I remember that uh, at the time I was, just before writing this, uh, was reading E.P. E. Thompson's uh, collected essays called Customs in Common, which is very much about how the political culture of England especially was being created in the 18th century by local movements of various different Forms. I think that was very important in the way I was thinking here. But then Pasuk was then coming of it, at it just simply from political economy, from the attempt to you know, put the politics back in the economics. So where I think we come out is a kind of compromise between those two ways of ordering the world. Now, I mentioned in the introduction that the book has been translated into Thai and it's been very well received by Thai readers. Can you tell us about the Thai reaction to the book? Is there any difference in the way that the book has been received by Thai and international readers? Yes, we, uh, we took some time to get it into Thai because uh, we had a lot of other things going on. And we've had some experience in trying to get our work translated by other people and it doesn't work. We spend more time correcting it. So in this case, Pasuk, Pasuk did the 
original translation and then I edited it. And we made a decision that we wouldn't change anything, that we, we would not um, we would not say, oh, we don't need to say this because Thai people don't need to be told this. And we wouldn't take things out because we thought it was too sensitive or anything like that. We did it absolutely straight. Some changes in wording, but abso absolutely straight. Um, and then we, 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 we were away in Japan and we came back for a launch event, which was at the book fair in March of 2014. And it was being published by... Matichon, which is the biggest serious publisher in Thailand. And we walked into the, the, the book fair and up to the Matichon stand and up behind the, their display, they put up their top 10 bestsellers in, you know, big cover pictures up on the wall. And there we were at number one, you know, and you could have knocked us down. We were utterly, utterly surprised. And we, um, we then went into a big launch event where the main uh, speech, which was summarizing the book, was done by Ajahn Piyabun, who since then has become very much more famous for his role in, in Future Forward. But at that time, he was just simply superb, much more just a, simply a superb academic. And the launch event was packed, and we went out, we sat signing books for, for a huge time. And since then, it's been reprinted 13 times. And, you, you know, it's amazing. But what of course, we didn't know, but the publisher, Matichon, knew when they read it, was that this was going to appeal. Because what the background, I think, to this is the, 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 the movement in people's thinking, in young people's thinking, which then exploded, obviously, in, 19, in 2020, 2021, uh, wanting people, young people, wanting to have a... Uh, a, a, view, a, a view on their history, which is very different from what they were being sold in, in their schools. And thus, the fact that we changed nothing, uh, which made it, you know, an international type of book rather than one geared for them, was, of course, the point that made it uh, really very, very successful indeed. And I think that, plus the point I made just now, the fact that uh, people can find themselves in the book. For instance, quite a short time uh, after it came out, Pasuk was up giving a speech somewhere up in the northeast, somewhere I think in the Kompanon, somewhere, and someone came up with a, a book and asked her to sign it. Okay, and then she said, "Yeah." Then, then she said, "Said, well, you know, uh, who are you, a teacher or what are?" She said, "No, a dentist." <laughs> it, it was actually in Konket. Um uh, so there were people like that who, 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 who were reading it. Um, and that is, I think, what made it so exceptionally successful. Yeah, it, it's so interesting how popular Thai history seems to be in Thailand right now. You know, it works by Thai stories like Tong Chai, Winnie Chikun, Natapun Chai, Jing, Somsak, Jim Tirasukun. They're widely read. Um, I think at the student demonstrations a couple of years ago, sometimes you could see, you know, protesters, these young protesters holding up these books almost as a kind of a, a symbol of, Resistance. How do you explain this current interest in, in Thai history in Thailand, which uh, your book obviously has been a beneficiary of? Yes, I, I think after you know after reading us when we came out, they then went they, they very quickly went beyond us back to the real thing, if you like, to Somsak and Tongchai and, uh, and Natapon and everyone else. So um, I think you just have to see it in terms generally of this 
generation now. I mean, they have been freed from the clutches of the, the old control of information that was there um, before the coming of the internet and the handset. I mean, before that, they were being sold uh, a particular line on the history and everything else by their schools, by the textbooks, by the mainstream media, um, and particularly by television, which was still being very much controlled by the government and by the military. But that has just totally broken down in the last 15, 20 years. It started with when the end of the terrestrial channels lost control over television. It went to, to first it, it went to satellites and then it went on to went on to the net, and then particularly with the coming of the handset and it becoming utterly. So now, you know, people control, they can control for themselves. And th this was obviously something of a, a revelation. You can see this in what people, was, many people were saying during the protests in 2020, 2021, is that, you know, they, they want to be in control of their information and what they're being told. And history has become a, an important crux of this because history has been in the past so controlled and so distorted by, you know, the authorities and by the education system that it was really ripe for this kind of overhaul that is now happening. And it back to the... Sorry. And it, it's also because historians like Tong Chai and Natapon and Somsak are so good, you know, they're, they're good to read. Yeah. yeah. Back to the English language edition, I think one of the characteristics of your works is that, uh, of course, they're based on, you know, meticulous, thorough, up-to-date research. At the same time, they're highly readable, um, free of jargon. And that's also the case for a history of Thailand. And in my humble experience, that's not always the case for modern academic writing. You have touched on this earlier, but... I was wondering if you'd say a little bit more about how much you think about the style of written expression of, of the books that you write. Uh, we think about it a lot. I, I think about it a lot. Uh, one of the curiosities of my career is that I spent some time working in the advertising industry. After I moved from, from, from England to come and live in Thailand, I, I worked in business for a long time, and part of that was working in the advertising industry. And I, in that, I got very interested because you know, advertisers spend a lot of money on their stuff and they very spend a lot of attention to communication and to what works and what, what doesn't work. And there's actually quite a lot of uh, good stuff written about how people read and absorb writing, prose writing. No. And I'm sure almost no academics read this at all. I read it, and it's fascinating. And then I, at that time also, there, we were all, a lot of us were reading, were using the, the word early word processor that was really good, was WordPerfect. This is before Windows Word became so important. And WordPerfect was wonderful. It had a kind of, it had a grammar checker. You could program. You could program it to find certain things like too many adverbs, too long sentences, all kinds of things like that. So I could program it to sort of go through the text and, and find the things that I knew from this research on writing it was difficult to understand. And it's what, what this research also tells you. I mean, lots of things like, you know, using too many abbreviations, 
uh, you're losing too many numbers. People, after a bit, just turn off. You know, they stop reading and they, they, get, they get bored and therefore they, they do something else. It's very simple technical stuff. So um, uh, I was just playing around with using these techniques in writing uh, academic work. And, and the, the most obvious example of that was our little book about Thailand's boom and bust. Um, I, I spent a long time honing that using uh, these principles. And let, let's say this, this is quite amazing. I mean, it's a book that was written very much about what happened after, immediately after the 1997 crisis. It's now way, way out of date. But actually, it's still being sold and used because it's used in courses about writing and reading. <laughs> As a general history of Thailand, in a short interview, it's difficult to do justice to the richness of the story that you've, you've written, but there are numerous themes that run through the narrative. And one of them is the country's diversity, ethnic, linguistic, even religious to a certain extent. You come back to this theme of diversity again and again. Can you say a little bit about how diversity figures in Thailand's modern history? Obviously, uh, very, very much indeed. And this is a product of the prehistory of this area because so much has changed in the last 200 to 250 years. The population at the beginning of the Bangkok period, so, you know, 220-odd years ago, was still very, very small. It may have been, you know, a million to two million, probably in the area of modern Thailand, no more than two million people. And most of the area was empty. Most of the area we now see as paddy fields, the, the classic view of Thailand, the paddy fields and the palm trees. It was scrub and, and jungle and forest, all of that. So you had this open area into which people could flow. You're then in the middle of Southeast Asia, which is basically a, a maritime region where travel is, is very, very easy in, in the pre-modern period, not to the modern period, because travel by water is by far the cheapest and easiest form. So the, and there are not many big barriers in this landscape. There's only a handful of re- rivers that are difficult to cross and, and, and only small mountain ranges. So the flow of people into this area, going way back to the, you know, the migrations of the Dai and everyone else and coming through uh, to you know, the coming of Islam into the peninsula and then the coming of the Chinese and then a whole lot of other smaller communities uh, which have been wonderfully studied and in much better since our book by Ed Van Roy in his wonderful book about melting pot. So there, there is this very obvious diversity of people coming in. Then the, the economy has, has promoted that in two ways. One is because the, of the, the land frontier, almost u- uniquely in the world in this period, uh, in the period in which population started to increase you know, worldwide from the middle of the 19th century onwards. In Thailand, the, the land under cultivation was, was expanding faster than the population. And this, this is all found almost nowhere else. And therefore, you created this big peasant society where it hadn't been one before. And I, the second is because the inflow of Chinese in, into the, the cities of Thailand, of Siam, 
there was almost no barriers to that. There was a few periods when uh, the government was a little bit suspicious and critical. But by and large, the old noble elite welcomed it because these people helped them to make money. Right? Um, and by and large, there was plenty of space for them to occupy as both laborers and as entrepreneurs. So it was a relatively friction-free process, these, these two major movements. I think that those two are the main, the main background to, to the diversity. I think you can add onto that, that in the modern era, in the era of development, from an early period, in fact, right back to the 1950s, Thailand has developed by relying on the outside world. I mean, the first, in the first case, just for markets for agricultural products, and then and and as for the, the source of their labor and enterprise from China. But then later on, obviously relying upon foreign investment very much, and then tourism and so on and so forth. And this has this has confirmed this diversity and the relative lack of barriers um, within the relative lack of barriers within within the society there are obviously parts of the national community that have been marked off and if you like sort of kind of excluded which most obviously includes the the muslim the muslim majority provinces in the south, the Malay Muslim minority there, and very much also the hill peoples. But apart from that, the internal barriers have been relatively low. A subset of this theme of diversity, and you've already touched on it, is the, is the ethnic Chinese. Uh, and this is a theme that we find in Southeast Asian history more generally. Arguably, Thailand has the largest, the best integrated and most influential uh, ethnic Chinese population in, in Southeast Asia. How did this happen? Well, it, it goes way back, you see. When, when, when the very first uh, references really we have to the th old Thai capital uh, of Ayutthaya going right back to the 13th and 14th century, it's clear that there were already a community of Chinese settlers there. And from that time, I mean, Ayutthaya, the old capital, uh, was basically a trading state look, looking outwards. And it, its major trade was always with China. And that was the major source of revenue for the monarchy. So this association between the monarchy and the Chinese goes way back to that time. And the Thai historian uh, has very much emphasized this long-term association between the crown and the capitalists in, in her book of the last couple of years. Then I think, and, and as I said just now, um, this outward looking has continued and therefore there has been relatively few barriers and it, this inflow of Chinese and the readiness to accept them has continued through to this day. And what we have seen just in the last 20 years is that since the opening up of the China, of China and its extraordinary economic boom, there has been another phase of Chinese immigration 
into Thailand, which is a little bit under the radar because there's people who are coming in and they're sort of op operating sort of semi-legally. But there's areas of Bangkok now which are colonies of new Chinese. They're not descendants of these old Chinese settlers from the 19th or early 20th century. They're people who have come in in the last 20 years. And there's parts particularly of uh, towns and cities in, in the north, of Chiang Mai and Chiang Rai and so on, which are like this too. So it's a continuing theme. It's not just one part of the history. It's a very, very long-term theme. Another one of these themes that you, you find throughout the book are, are two factors that kind of seem to drive Thai history or contribute to the, to, to the historical development of the country. Um, they are war and commerce. Can you describe the role of these factors in the book? Uh, war. Well, uh, in I mean, the birth of modern Thailand, and modern Siam, modern Thailand, I mean, we, we take, although we call this history of Thailand, it's really a history of Thailand in the Bangkok era with, with a little bit of background on there. So the, the, the immediate background to, to this period is the wars with Burma in the middle of the 18th century, which include the sack and ruination of the old capital of Ayutthaya, but actually much more devastating than that. The fighting went on for 40 or 50 years. Much of northern Thailand and also western Thailand was virtually depopulated and deserted by these wars, and therefore the process of rebuilding uh, the population and the economy and everything else took a, a, a very long time indeed. So what, one part of that is that this, is, this background in war is very much uh, present in, in the, if you like, both the mentality and the mythology of Thailand in this, this Bangkok era. Then uh, both the First and Second World Wars have been occasions when Thailand has negotiated its relationship to the West, you know, to the, the dominant politics of the world. Um, and, and of course, most firstly in the First World War, by deciding to have a symbolic uh, contribution to uh, the, the Britain and, and France in, in, its, in its war against Germany. It was a very symbolic contribution, but it positioned Thailand as a player, independent player in international affairs at a time when, of course, most countries were still under colonial rule. So this gave Thailand a rather special role and after that in the League of Nations as well. And then, of course, that is sort of repeated in a different way in the Second World War which enables Thailand to shift its major international patronage from Britain, which had been its major international patron before, to the US. Yeah? Because uh, at the end of the war, after Thailand had collaborated with Japan and Britain wants to punish Thailand and basically wants to get hold of its rice to feed its ex-colonies, Thailand goes to the U.S. and the U.S. agrees to stop them doing this and then becomes the patron of Thailand and then uses that patronage to manipulate Thailand's role in, in, in the Cold War. So, yes, war has played a, a very, very 
important part in the, in the way its passage, Thailand's passage into the modern world has been played. Another subject you develop in the book is the rise of absolutism as well as resistance to it. And, of course, absolutism seems to loom quite largely in Thai historiography these days. In your book, monarchy and absolutism are certainly there, but it feels like you try to counterbalance it by highlighting the role of of many other forces. Would that be right? Absolutely. And I think this this is a very important point. If you look at the new historiography on Thailand in the last maybe 20 years, but particularly in the last 10, there has been an amazing focus on the monarchy, right? I mean, there have obviously been several major books that have been published on the monarchy and several collections, even more collections of essays. And uh, you have to especially mention the work of Natapon Jaiji, uh, this Thai historian um, who has done, who did has done amazing work in the archives, both in Thailand itself, but more particularly in the consular archives from US and the UK, and has kind of very much rewritten the period from uh, the First World War onwards uh, using this material. And um, what he has done, and we 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 have used his stuff. I mean, this is one of the major reasons for this revision was to incorporate his material plus some others into the, into the story. What he has shown, really, is how the reaction uh, to 1932, the counter-reaction, the monarchist reaction to 1932, was so strong. It, it, we all knew it went back to the, you know, the days immediately after 24th June 1932. But what he shows even Better, even more than that, is the crucial period of 1947 to 1951, when the, the monarchists, who had many of them had to leave the country in the 19, mid-30s, come back, regroup, make, create a relationship uh, with parts of, of the army, and start to reap to plan the, 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 if you like, the resurgence of the monarchy, and, and, and how successful they are, and. It, he, he's also very good. He and Saichon Satyanurak are very good in showing the ideological bases of these. The emergence of the, the whole I- idea of democracy with the king as head of state. The whole ide- idea of the moral king. So that when you, now that the king has lost his absolute power in the constitution, to regain his influence, he needs a, another different basis of power outside constitutionalism, and that is discovered and done very brilliantly by building up this idea of the moral king as a counterforce. So we have incorporated a a lot of that into the work. However, however, I'm always worried that this, this focus on the monarchy has particularly recently, has started to kind of block out the what else is going on in the history. And this is, I think, most obvious in Wassana's book on the crown and the capitalist, who says absolutely out and openly, the only two things that matter in this history is the crown and the capitalist. You can forget the rest. You know, you, you know and this democracy stuff, just, you know, just forget it. It's not important at all. 
Um, and, I th and there is a tendency now to uh, forget you know, what was achieved by 1932, what was achieved by the democracy movement in the, in the later 20th century. And Arjun Subramaniam's book that came out last year called Amnesia focuses on that absolutely, and I, I totally agree with him. But uh, the way we wanted to do this was to uh, not forget the achievements of the democracy movement and of, of what, what happened in particularly at the end of the 20th century. So I, I want to, to, to read uh, one paragraph. And this paragraph comes at the beginning of the, the new last chapter, which begins in 2005. And it, it wants to overcome this amnesia by reminding us of what has happened. And it goes like this. It said, during the 27 years from the restoration of the parliament in 1978 to the election of 2005, the parliamentary system became established as never before. Elective politicians reclaimed space from military rule. Successive constitutional reforms enlarged the role of elections. Popular participation increased from a 44% turnout in 79 to 73% in 2005. Policy platforms became a significant factor in elections from 2001, and the party system was streamlined into an approximation of a two-party system. The cabinet and parliament gradually passed more legislation responsive to popular demands, including social welfare measures, reforms of the bureaucracy, expansion of education, supports for agriculture, and provisions to combat poverty. As the parliamentary regime strengthened, there was more space for media, civil society, and public debate. Around the millennium, Thailand was vaunted as the most open society in Southeast Asia. Though many problems remained, the distance from the book burning of the Tanin government in 1976 to the open debates of the early 2000s was immense. That, that was a very difficult paragraph to write and to, to, to compress as much of that. But to me, it's one of the most important uh, paragraphs in the book. And it's saying, and particularly when what we have seen uh, since 2005, this resurrection of authoritarianism or absolutism or what you th might think, and the destruction of so much of what was achieved in the, 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 court, the quarter century that is described in this paragraph. I think this is a, a very important point to make. In the same vein, trying to avoid this excessive focus on, on the monarchy, um, your book gives a lot of attention to, to the peasantry who don't really get much of a look in in a lot of official versions, especially of Thai history. I think your book kind of positions them as one of the major social forces that have you know, contributed to shaping modern Thai history. And you give a lot of attention in particular to the way that they expanded Thailand's agricultural frontier in successive waves since the 19th century. Why did you give such attention to the peasantry? Well, just for this reason, we're trying to write a history of the country and a history which gives, uh, gives proper weight to the society uh, rather than just focusing very much on, on the elite level of, of society. And, um, and if you like, uh, beyond that, 
we don't think you can explain the politics by just looking at what a handful of kings and politicians and generals say to one another. That things are very much driven by by the political economy, to put it briefly, by very much by what is going on in the society as a whole. So these, this creation of this massive peasant economy, and you must remember there was, you know, we all we tend to think that because Thailand had this big peasant economy in the 19th century, that it's always been there. It, it wasn't. You know, there was very little, very limited agricultural land during the Ayutthaya era. So it was a massive expansion. And it created this peasant society that was in many ways somewhat separated from the cities and rather independent in its way. And that was in some way also a background to the peasant rebellions and the communists, the insurrections and the communist movement in the in the twentieth century. So, and it also then uh, formed the basis of the national economy until nineteen sixties. Basically, exporting rice and timber and a few other things was, that was the economy. So, the rest of the society was living off this enormous peasant economy. And then, uh, even in this early stages of development, it's extracting. Uh, wealth from that rice exporting economy that is used then to invest in the beginnings of urbanization in industrialization. So for us, this is something uh, you you simply cannot ignore. Then on top of that, then the decline of this peasant economy since then, most particularly since this, I guess from the 80s onwards when the land frontier has run out, when there comes to be a conflict between uh, farming uh, and forestry, we need to keep trees and so on. And when the urban economy is demanding demanding labor, it's sapping, it's sucking people out of the countryside. And at that point, the investment in this peasant economy more or less stops the, the, you know the, the 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 entrepreneurs which had been in, investing in it go off to invest in shopping malls and hotels and everything else and the government more or less loses interest as well so the 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 development for instance of the irrigation system remains very primitive in Thailand given how much water and how important it is so the decline of this uh, peasant economy in the background has been critical also as background to these turbulent politics which we have seen in the last 20 20 years. You cannot deny, I think, that the whole red shirt movement is in some ways uh, founded in this decline of the peasant economy. There's an entirely new section of the book at the end which covers the political crisis that began in 2005 and has continued in one form or another up until the present. And uh, one subject that you deal with towards the end is the emergence of a politicised youth movement, really over the last two or three years, I guess. And I think you know, one of the most remarkable events that I can think of in modern Thai history was, uh, I think it was in August 2020, when one of the student groups publicly read out a list of 10 demands to reform the monarchy. And predictably, they ended up getting into a lot of trouble. Can you can you explain the actual re-emergence of the youth in Thai politics and why are they so radical? It's generation change, but it's it's 
simply much more than that, I think. If you think about the different, genera the different generations now present in Thailand, the country is run by people who are now in their 50s, 60s, and 70s. And these were people who you know, grew up in Thailand in the time of the Cold War. You know, they, they were taught at school that the monarchy is wonderful and uh, the communists are the big threat and you can't trust the people. You know, they're, they're the, people, the mass of the people are dangerous. And this mentality is still very much there in, in, in this, gen this older generation. Then you think of those who kind of grew up in the background of the, the millennium. Um, that when Thailand has, you know, in the boom, where, where it was suddenly becoming a modern, urbanized, globalized city. And there, there's a great sort of optimism in that generation that Thailand is going to, you know, flip and it's going to join the, the modern world. And even the 1997 crisis was seen eventually as being only a, a blip. And at, when the recovery came under Thaksin, the, that kind of that kind of um, optimism very much changed. So they have another kind of mindset. Then you go to this younger generation, particularly those who have grown up uh, since the, the, the millennium. You can call them Generation Z or whatever, whatever you want. But they have grown up in this time when Thailand has already become a, a very globalized place. Bangkok has become a, a world city. They, as I've said earlier, have been released by the handset. They've been released by the, the internet from the controls on their knowledge. They can look around the world and they are looking around and saying, look, we are now an upper middle income country, whatever the way they see that. Why do we have these enormously primitive social institutions? And why are we still being run by people with these very ancient mindsets? So it's not just the usual generational change, the, the, the difference between you know, conservatism and optimism. It is very much that these, because of the pace at which the country has changed, society has changed, and its position in the world has changed, the mentalities of these people are very, very different indeed. So the, this extraordinary movement that surged up in, in 2020 it was a demand for many things. It was demand, as you said, um, in, in Rung's uh, amazing uh, speech uh, for reform of the monarchy. It was reform more generally uh, to get away from the absolutism and this incredibly primitive politics imposed by the generals as a result of the two coups in the early 21st century. But it was it's also a protest against the continuation of very backward uh, social practices. These school kids being told to cut their hair and all, all this kind of stuff and, and what to wear and, you know, um, and they, they look around the world and, and they can see that this is not normal, that this is a conceit. It's a series of practices that the Thai elite still believes in and, and wishes to enforce. So one of the most important of the groups that was active in 2020 was this wonderful group who called themselves bad students, you know, and Leo, with every sort of overturning, you know, the, the usual social codes. 
And if you went, if you went to these demonstrations in 2020, I only went to a couple, but um, uh, there's lots of good video footage. What the most striking thing was, not just uh, the number of young people, not just the number of young people in school uniforms, but the number of girls, the very high proportion of women, of females, amongst these young people in these demonstrations. And I think you can explain that by the fact that they are, are, have been feeling this oppression more than others, and they are even more uh, feeling of release uh, from the opportunities that are available to them. In the middle of this uh, period, uh, we went to see uh, a traditional cultural performance in, in an outdoor setting outside Bangkok, okay? which was a, a, a demonstration of corn, which is the old form of dance drama. And we were sitting there, and uh, beside us in, in the, the, the seating, there was a, a section that had obviously been uh, occupied by the local school. So there were a lot of uh, teenage teenage boys and girls who'd come to watch as well. And the girls particularly, they were absolutely sort of open-mouthed uh, in, in watching this very wonder, wonderful uh, performance of Korn, which had lovely costumes and, was, and, and you were seeing it very close up, so it was beautiful to watch. They, they were goggle-eyed watching, and then you looked and you saw all of them had uh, their hair tied up with white ribbons, which at that time was the symbol of being sympathetic with this youth movement. So it's this lovely co contrast between being fascinated by the old culture, but at the same time identifying totally with this youth movement. Since the authoritarian turn in Thailand's politics, especially after the 2014 coup, writing history has sometimes been a rather dangerous activity. Some scholars of Thai history are in exile. Some have been taken in for so-called attitude adjustment. By the military, some have been charged with les majesty, um, and some have been sued by conservatives. Yeah. How have you navigated the minefield of modern Thai history? This is—it's a huge problem, and there's there's in a sense no no way around it. It it has become very risky, and some people have paid a very big price for taking risks and defying these um, these. Attempts to attempts at suppression. Um, we are, you know, we live here. We live in, in in Bangkok, in Thailand, and we don't particularly want to alter that at the moment. And this does, yes, it makes certain restrictions on what you can say. And the the real difficulty is that, uh, particularly the Les Majestes law and defamation laws in general, it's not anything to do with truth, okay? If, if you say something and it's considered defamatory, it doesn't matter whether it's true or not. If it's, the, the law simply focuses on whether it's defamatory. So you have to be very, very careful indeed. Um, we... Uh, in fact, both on the last revision of the book back in uh, 2014 and in, in this one, we had a lawyer uh, read text, uh, and a lawyer who is one of these people who acts in 
such cases of a public lawyer who acts in these cases. And uh, the lawyer assured us, not assured us, the lawyer said, in their opinion, it should be okay. However, what we also know is that the, the courts have become very, very unpredictable indeed, and very particularly unpredictable in cases which have anything to do with the monarchy. You can read the law one way, but they are quite capable of reading it another way. And particularly a couple of, um, couple of rulings by the Constitutional Court last year were quite worrying because they interpreted these laws in ways which made it, made, made it very risky, very, very dangerous indeed. So all we do is try and you know, stay close, <laughs> close to the boundary, if you like, to, to say uh, as much as you can. But like everyone else, yes, we self-censor. We, we self-censor for, for our own good, for our own protection. Last, but definitely not least, we have to talk about the book cover. Uh, unfortunately, this is an audio podcast, so the listeners can't actually see it, but this book has one of the most unusual covers that I've ever seen, uh, certainly for an academic publication. I don't think there's anything like it for a, a book on Thai history. Can you explain uh, or describe the cover to the listeners and tell us what the inspiration was and, most importantly, what it actually means? Oh, okay. Um we we wanted because we we have changed a lot in this book, right? We there, there's over apart from, we we rewrote completely. We threw everything away after 2000 in the old in the old versions and rewrote the whole thing again. And we have over 200 changes, major changes. I'm not just talking of changing some words, but of significantly changing uh, passages, whole paragraphs, and so on through the through the whole book. And, and major changes in the interpretation as well. So we wanted a cover that kind of announced that, that it was somehow uh, very different. Um, and we had, the previous edition had a, a nice uh, mural painting, a 19th century mural painting showing Bangkok. So we thought it, we and the publisher thought it would be a good idea to, to, to go for a, a painting, but maybe a more modern painting. And uh, we went to talk to Chak Wichai. Chak Wichai is the director of the Bangkok Art and Culture Center, the, the BACC, the horse in in the center of Bangkok. He's a very old friend of ours. And he, he, he suggested various artworks which might be interesting. And the one that uh, caught, our, caught our eye is this extraordinary picture which shows what looks to be like the Constitution Monument, uh, but it's floating in a very sort of lurid green sea. And when you look at the monument as it's drawn, painted, instead of it being made of concrete, it's made of fish and, and seafood, the, you know, the, 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 the blades going up are fish and prawns and so on like this. And there's then, uh, beside it, there's a beach and there are people on the beach um, looking out at this site, and, and some of them are lying down naked, and others are looking out at this apparition of the monument. And we thought this was uh, just just splendid. And um, we went to the to the artist, who is Tian Chai Nok Nam, and and he was he was overjoyed that we would use use it. So that was 
fine. And the CUP came on board as well. And then on top of that, uh, the designers in Australia put around this picture an extraordinary framing in very, very bright and lurid sort of orange and magenta and, and red colors. So the whole thing is quite just a visual feast. We also asked Tian Chai, the artist, to, to write a little piece to explain you know, what this was all about. And he lives in Chonburi, by, by the sea, and he, he, he's, he's painted quite a lot of things with political content in a, a similar way. And he, 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 he says in this, that he, the idea just popped into his head one day. He said, a, a scene instantly popped into my head as a democracy monument floating in the sea. I sketched out the idea, but somehow didn't like the four wings of the monument. At the time, our prime minister happened to be a woman, Yingluck, whose nickname is Bull, meaning a cra crab. That made me think of using sea creatures. And so that, and he says, you know, the people on the beach are, are, are looking at this because it's so interesting and they're much more interested in the monument than they are in the naked bodies. And he says at the end of this note, and we put this note in the, in the book, in truth, it's a comparison between democracy and food, and specifically seafood, because I live near the sea and seafood is so good. Everyone likes eating deep sea fish and deep sea shellfish in the same way they want to have a deep full-blown version of democracy, which is wonderful. So, I mean, that's what he thinks it, it means. Um, and uh, yes, we think we liked it for very much that kind of view. It's a very, it's a very not so much disturbing, it's a rather fascinating view of the democracy monument. And somewhat optimistic, given the, uh, given the, the sort of critical gloom around at the moment. Uh, you and Ajahn Pasuk have had a, an incredibly productive career. Before we conclude, can I ask you whether you're working on a new project and what that project is? Many. We also <laughs> we tend to get pulled into many things. Pasuk has just finished a big project about land governance. And this is about the, the administration of land and particularly, obviously, what has happened to it in this period after the, the, the the land frontier, and in this time of agricultural decline. And it's it, it's a mess. That's the point. The, the point of the project is it's a mess. It makes a lot of people unhappy. It's very inefficient and so on. So that is floating at the moment between it in, in the way uh, to publication. We have been uh, doing a lot of translation of old Thai literary works. Um, we did Kun Chan Kumpan. 10 years ago, or more than 10 years ago. But since then, we've been going back to look at the earliest Thai literary works. There's about five of them. And these are all from basically around uh, 1500, around that period. So they're 500 years old. And we, we've published three of them, Yun Pai, Tawa Totsama, 12 months, and Lilit Palo. And we're doing one other, Irat Haripunchai at the moment, and then maybe the the fifth one, which is the ocean lament. And this is great fun, and, and you know nobody has done this, and they're really rather good, and they're really worth doing. And then on top of that, we have got drawn into a group doing legal history, the history of law. And we got into this because uh, for writing the book on Ayutthaya, the history of Ayutthaya, I translated the, the 
the palace law, one of the major laws, and, and found that this old collection of laws, the Three Seals Law, which are basically all the old Ayutthaya laws put together in 1805, are absolutely fascinating. So I've gone back to looking at those and also, in fact, to start translating them as well. We have translated a major part now of the old Three Seals Law. We're not quite sure where that will go, but it's, it's, it's again, it's a way of looking at Thai history more at the society than just at the politics. These laws are full of, of social detail, which you will get absolutely nowhere else. So this is a long-term project. So much to look forward to. Chris Baker, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of New Books in Southeast Asian Studies to discuss your and Ajahn Pasuk's uh, new fourth edition of your book, uh, History of Thailand, published this year by Cambridge University Press. Patrick, thank you very much indeed. And you've been listening to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thanks, as always, for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, then you might also be interested in listening to other podcasts about books which deal with the modern history and politics of Thailand, like uh, Wasana Wongsurawat's The Crown and the Capitalists, The Ethnic Chinese and the Founding of the Thai Nation, uh, mentioned in this interview, uh, or Duncan McCargo and Anyarat Chaturagun's Future Forward, The Rise and Fall of the Thai Political Party. You can download or stream these interviews and thousands more free of charge via the New Books Network website or iTunes. <laughs>